Welcome to the Powers Report podcast. I'm your host, Janice Powers. The show brings you candid, unique, and data-driven perspectives on the healthcare industry. I believe that any solution that is going to positively impact the American healthcare system has to satisfy two major criteria, financial viability and behavioral incentive alignment. In other words, access to high quality care can only be achieved if we can afford it and if we behave in ways that optimize our health. Please subscribe to our show on your preferred podcasting platform and connect with us on social media. Again, this is Janice Powers and welcome to the Powers Report podcast. Hey everyone. Uh, I am excited to have yet another guest on the Powers Report. Um, if you've been listening to the show, we have had 30 episodes and only one of them has had a guest on it. Um, and I think it's a great opportunity at this point in the show to start getting some insights from leaders in the industry in different areas. So I am excited today to introduce you to David Kelly. David Kelly is a leader in healthcare revenue management at one of the largest not-for-profit provider systems in the country. He's been in healthcare since 2006 in a number of roles and organizations and is a strong believer in price transparency, one of my favorite topics, and patient-centered care. He is also an advocate for the providers and caregivers within the health systems where he works. He believes the industry must continue to improve by leveraging innovation and disruption better embracing technology and automation, including AI, and using a systems approach to process improvement. So I'm super happy to have David on the show so we can talk about money. Uh, in, in healthcare, um, we, we hear a lot about the, the clinical decisions that need to be made. Obviously, healthcare is all about people being healthy, but um, if you've listened to this show before, I think that costs need to be part of this discussion and the money side of the business is absolutely fascinating. Um, in my career, uh, I spent a lot of time as a healthcare strategy consultant before starting my company, Longitudinal Healthcare, and it was always so, it was like a black box, the whole revenue side of the business, because I was in operations, so it was more about, you know, how to best optimize how care was delivered to make sure patients got the best care that they could and then spend the money as wisely as possible on the expense side. So I'm delighted to have uh, an expert like David here who can tell us a little bit more about the revenue side of the business. So I'd love for David, if you could sort of give our listeners an, an overview of what exactly the revenue cycle is, which is a, a technical term, but um, like, what does that mean? If you could tell us sort of like from the beginning of when, like from a patient's perspective, when I, when I like tell you my insurance, what happens from that point all the way through to like you as the hospital getting paid? Like, how does that work? Sure, I'm happy to do and so. In 30 seconds. Yes, 30 <laughs> seconds. I, I don't know if I can do it in 30 seconds, but I'll do it as quickly as I can. Uh, if I may, though, I will say thank you. I didn't realize I was your second guest, so thank you for that yeah. honor and for having me here. Um, well, that's how important this topic is, so I'm, I'm glad to have you. I agree. I actually have a mantra that um, finances are a part of care, and we have to recognize that. Um, that means financial people have to realize the care component of the financial decisions they make 
And I think the clinical folks need to recognize the financial elements that our patients are dealing with. Um, and that's, that's sort of just a fact, it's an escapable fact. So to understand the revenue cycle then, which is a fancy term, really it, it's, it's just that component of how a hospital in the United States anyway, gets paid. And taking it back to sort of um, basic concepts, you, you schedule an appointment, a visit, a procedure with your, with your doctor, with your provider, with your local hospital. That's when the revenue cycle starts because essentially that's when your account opens and the revenue cycle isn't done until that account reaches $0. So that's the, the end to end, that's the bookends of the revenue cycle and everything in between there from your scheduling to your check-in to the documentation, coding, billing your insurance, billing you if you have a copay, that is sort of the, the, the end to end of the revenue cycle. We then touch other elements like negotiating with insurance companies and things like that, but generally those are thought of as separate from the revenue cycle. Yeah, I think one thing that is so overwhelming to uh, to me and maybe many folks out there is that, you know, as a hospital or a provider, physician, whatever, it's not like there's one path. And, you know, it depends on not only the insurance you have, but the plan you have. And so, for example, you know, if I have an HMO, then I have to get approval from a primary care doctor to go see a specialist. And so there's all this back and forth. And then there's these pre-authorizations depending on some kinds of plans where I may need to have approval for a doctor. And so you guys have to have all of that somehow automated in your system. So you're kicking stuff out that insurance companies aren't gonna pay you for. It's those terms, I don't know how you guys stay on top of that. Well, we stay on top of it through a lot of administrative burden to our healthcare system. And I mean, <laughs> I hate to call myself that because I live in that space, but ultimately that's the reality is we're trying to help our organizations get paid fairly for the services they render. At least that's the majority. Sure, there's some bad apples out there, but most of us just want to do the right thing to reflect what that doctor or that MRI or that surgery, the work that was put into the patient. And to achieve that, there, there's a lot of work. And to your point, it's it's the insurance companies, there's the regulations then that come from the state and federal level that we have to stay on top of that. And so we have lots of people um, at an, even the smallest provider office, your local physician office is gonna have an office manager or somebody who's trying to stay on top of all this to a big enterprise like mine that's got hospitals and surgery centers and MRIs and all this stuff. And we have whole teams that, that try to do this. So. Um, and the more complex the provider is, the more rules you have to stay on top of. So it's a, it's a big challenge, um, but it's it, I, I think that, I don't wanna say that it's all warranted because I do think there's, there's things in our industry that need to change. As you mentioned in my intro, I do believe that. I think for sustainability, we have to streamline some of this, but I also think that at this point, it's we're, we're trying to add some value behind those physicians because or, or those nurses or whoever they don't want to deal with all this stuff you know right yeah i mean the thing that i find so interesting in this is the the coding part because i feel like you know if you break like i feel like coding is never going to go away and actually in my my book healthcare meet the american dream i have a chapter in the book that talks about like milestones in american healthcare history 
And, you know, we're all familiar with a lot of the big ones about, you know, when the Clintons tried to pass, you know, this universal health care and when, you know, Medicaid was passed and social, you know, all that sort of stuff. But to me, when DRGs were introduced, um, that to me was a major turning point because, and you can explain what this is, but it's sort of like it enabled healthcare to be the billing and it really just, it structured how healthcare got delivered because suddenly every procedure, everything that could be done got into a category and got a code associated with it. And the second there was a code associated with it, you could put a price to it. And then it was like, well, how do I get that price? What do I have to do to, to you know qualify as this code versus another? And maybe you could, tell us a little bit about the different types of codes there are and <laughs> uh, how the revenue cycle is involved in that because I think it's it's um it's 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 so much more than I had you know a knee replacement yeah it it is more than that it is more than that and the the what codes there are I'll try to simplify that there are so many different types of codes right Originally, there were DRGs. Now there's MSDRGs and APRDRGs. And I don't want to get into acronym gobbledygook for your listeners. But I, I think that it's important to know how many different types of code sets there are out there and how important it can be. If you want to shop quality or you want to shop price, you actually have to know at least the basics of some of these things or ask your doctor, oh, I need a knee replacement. What, what do you think that code is going to be? Because if you want to go look up quality scores at Medicare, you're probably going to look them up by code. Put basically, though, a DRG, sticking with that, came about in the 80s, stands for Diagnosis Related Group, and it's essentially for inpatient services where you're going to stay overnight, multiple nights usually, in a hospital, and it might be for a knee replacement, is all the services, the room, the surgery itself, all the supplies go into this bucket that then you get paid, assuming you're paid according to DRGs, um, which for Medicare you would be, just like I said, there's so much nuance here. I'm trying to skip over and yet not skip too much. Um, it, if you're going to have that DRG, your, your hospital is going to get X dollars. And there's some potential add-ons and things like that. But the bottom line is, let's say $30,000 or $20,000 is the payment for that DRG versus some other DRG, like just having your meniscus repaired you know, or something like that is a much lower dollar because it's less complex. And to your point, that was actually transformative to our industry because it became less about just paying for cost, you know, cost plus a markup to, well, you better figure out how to get people back out the door healthy, quickly, you know, so forth and so on. So. Yeah, I remember, you know, my projects back in the day uh, and we were always, you know, there was always this element and even, you know, in past work I've done where it seems so like aggressive for a hospital to be trying to get the, the most revenue that they can by, you know, coding appropriately. And so because there's so many regulations and rules, like it, it always seems like there's more money that could be made if you just ask the patient, you know, this question then, you know, or you just did this one other test, then it dumps you into this other, you know, higher reimbursement code. And that 
is never going to change, right? I mean, it's just it's just a function of the fact that that's that's just how you know the the world rolls. And even though most of the community hospitals in America are not for profit, they still are trying to optimize their revenue, or at least they should be, sure. right? Yeah, and I think that to think that that's an aggressive strategy, trying to steal money from the system. Um, you know, it's there's certainly illegal upcoding, but that I mean, folks need to know that that's just how how things are structured, and that you got to sort of get your head around the fact that um, without these codes, you know, it would be, we just we couldn't have the system. But knowing that there are these codes, this to me is the reason why when we shift to a discussion about price transparency and we're trying to get people to understand what the prices of care are, it's not as simple as you know just putting off this price list and thinking that right. people can understand or that they know how to shop. And for our company, uh, Longitudinal Healthcare, we are you know, huge advocates of price transparency. But one of the things I, I, I think makes more sense, and this is why we've developed you know, this approach, is you know, we're, we're in the business of thinking that everything in the outpatient environment should, should be, you know, most of it should be paid one price direct to provider at cash rates and how that gets funded, you know, is like, you know, a mission, mission impossible, but there are a lot of different ways to fund it, but it makes so much more sense to just do it that way because then providers wouldn't have to be dealing with all, you know, all these different contracts. They just have, everybody just pays this one amount, but it's still complicated um, because it's hard to know which code you're going to fall into um, so let's just sort of pump the brakes on, on that element. And I want to ask you about the, you know, recent regulation that just got affirmed about price transparency. Um, and this is with regard to hospitals needing to, and maybe you can explain it better than me, but hospitals now have to publicize their information and the American Hospital Association, the AHA sued the federal government. They didn't want to do it. That got overruled. And as of January 1 of this year, you folks, hospitals are supposed to be providing this information. So tell me how that's going. Sure. <laughs> Maybe I, you can explain the law a little better. I would be happy to explain it to kind of give my opinion on it. I will caveat yeah. heavily that any opinions I give on this matter are mine and mine alone and don't necessarily reflect my employer. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> I, it's a complicated rule that I think is trying to force our industry forward because there are a lot of us in, in the, the hospital and, and, physician side of this industry who do believe in price transparency, but there's a number of folks who, who don't. And there's nuance to that as well. The rule says, and it was um, put out by the Trump administration, um, reaffirmed recently with a circuit court case to that case you're talking about, the American Hospital Association uh, suing the Department of Health and Human Services. I don't know if they will appeal or not, we'll see, but Ultimately, it went into effect on January 1st of this year, and it really had at a high level two mandates. It said that all hospitals in the United States must put forth what they called a, a list of their shoppable services. They didn't do a great job of defining what that is. They, they said, here's 70 things that we you must post. If you don't do them at your hospital, you can substitute something one for one for those 70, and you must post at least 300 shoppable services. But they didn't say, is that 
volume, like your, your most frequently uh, used services. They didn't say, is that your most uh, sort of commoditized services? You know, some things like lab services right. have become essentially a commodity. There's not a lot of guidance on that. And you can either do it through, through basically a file on your website, or you could do it through a essentially a, a patient self-service estimator capability. So you could go get your own estimate. Yeah. Which is uh, where which is where my employer landed. We we already had estimator services, but it was on demand. So we were able to modify that and go with the self-service. And that so we we were able to meet the requirement in that way. The second component at a high level, and this is where a lot of the controversy was, at least in the folks that I talked to in RevCycle circles and, and payer relations circles, is what was called a list of your standard services in a machine-readable format. And what that means is basically they want like an Excel file or something like that that you can download off the website that would have all of your, what they called your standard charges, which would be your DRG, what you get paid, what you've negotiated with the insurance companies to get paid for a DRG, like a knee replacement, as well as if you have line items or a surgery package, we go back to all the different types of codes, any given code group that you've agreed to, they wanted that all published and they wanted it all in um, a certain format and so forth and so on. And let me tell you that, so, so that's the facts of, of what the requirement was. No equivalent mandate was posted until recently for the insurance companies, by the way. Um, and so- Which I don't think is fair. Well, I mean, if you're gonna do one, right? I agree. However, uh, a recent rule was published that goes into effect on January 1st of 22, that the insurance companies will start to have to publish this type of information. So at least that's a good level. If that stands with the incoming administration and so forth, that'll be a good sort of leveling of the playing field, I think, which is, you know, a bit more equitable um, in, in terms of how we're going to approach this as an industry. Um, so AHA, you know, they've caught a lot of heat. Folks say, you know, these hospitals want to hide prices. Maybe some of them do. But what I would say is, is, I mean, what business wants to give away necessarily, if it's not a fixed price, like a restaurant, you go and you order off the menu, you know, a consultant, a lawyer, um, you know, a, a home builder, do they want to have to publish for you what they quoted the last guy? I mean, that that's, I, I'm not sure why healthcare is different. So again, that's a little bit of a, of a personal opinion in terms of publishing what we negotiate with uh, an insurance company, where I think we make the most impact for our patients is those estimates, making them as easy as possible, as relevant as possible. Um, and then ideally, you know, a group like yours or somebody out there tying that to quality as well, because yeah. it doesn't do you much good to get the lowest quality. And if their outcomes are a lot worse and, and you have a bad outcome, that's just right. my yeah, thoughts right. on that. So, so that, thank you for that explanation. Um, and I, I, I have to say, I am a thousand percent for the first part of what you described. The second part from a consumer perspective, like I don't care, right? I mean, I think for, it's nice for employers now or other insurance companies to see what their comp competition was paying you guys. And, you know, then suddenly, you know, theoretically the price should all bubble, it should all level set. And, right. you know, it's like, well, if I'm paying this guy that and that guy that, I mean, you know, the, the tough thing for the hospitals is that, you know, you might have to pay the lowest negotiated rate to everyone 
On the flip side, you, you know, it depends on what your market power is and, you know, you can just charge whatever you want. Cause it's like, I'm the big game in town and I've got the best doctors and I've right. got the, you know, the open heart surgery and you're going to want me in your network. So tough luck, this is it. And that's just how it rolls, right? right. If you are the best hospital, then you should, I mean, in my mind, that's, you know, market-based pricing, but as a consumer, you know, I, I could care less, right. Cause I'm not paying any of that. If, if it gets to the point where, I am going to be in the hospital to have back surgery. I mean, it, the cost of that care, the deductible is going to be so far, you know, so much less than whatever that crazy price is. And it's not like I'm going to go price compare your hospital to someone else's, right? I'm going to go where my doctor tells me to go and I'm going to hope I can walk after, right? Um, yep. So that's why I think for my company, I'm like, I, you know, I'm never going to want to get into a position at this point, keep it simple and help people with those shoppable services. And I do wish that they had specified better, you know, and articulated everybody's got to do these 100 just to start. Right. So just out of curiosity, like what is a typical, you know, shoppable service? Like if it's lab, is it like CBC? Like, you know, if it's an, you know, an MRI, is it a MRI for lower extremity or, and that's one and then MRI for, you know, abdomen is the second and then MRI abdomen with contrast is the third. Like there's so many different ways to slice it that I'd be curious to know what their typical like shoppable service, like how do they describe that? Sure. Um, in, in the CMS list, it's a lot of those types of things. Um, basic basic labs individual. like the CBC or they had, I think a few DRGs that were on their list, like the knee replacement type stuff um, that was on that list as well. Um, and, and so our organization, we really tried to look at what are the more commonly used things for each of our facilities right. under the idea that that's what patients are going to want to, to understand and to be able to get a quote on. If we do three brain CTs a year, but we do 3,000 chest CTs, it doesn't necessarily do us a lot of good to put out the price of the brain CT, right? It doesn't help our patients. And again, that, that's really where we want to help our patients. And, and so that was some of the philosophy that we brought to the table. Other organizations, just talking to peers, I think were very similar. A lot of folks were doing volume-based analysis, um, but you know, there, there's a whole range of, of what people could have brought to the table. And, and if I may uh, double down on something you just mentioned as we were transitioning topics there, I do think that the outgoing administration's philosophy you know, has been sort of trying to you know, push market and, and markets to, to drive pricing. And that's where that transparency of the standard charges, I think the idea was that'll push down rates over time and lower the cost of care. And that, that may occur, but again, mm -hmm. I, I wanna help our patients. And, right. and that's, that's what I stay in this industry for. That's why I'm happy to work for a nonprofit. I, I wanna help patients with their care and a race to the bottom does not necessarily help patients with their care. I, I just, that's not a philosophy that I personally agree with. Um, yeah, so. well, <laughs> and I'm, thank you for saying that because I, I, it should go without saying, and I know you, so I know you feel that way. Uh, it is interesting over the years how hospitals just seem to be viewed like as this dichotomous group, you know, that they're, 
most of them are so mission driven, even the for-profit hospitals, mm -hmm. you know, they still have the mission and they do so much in the community. At the same time, we drive around, it's like, come to our ER. There's yes. only like a 15 minute wait. And then, you know, you get balance billed and like, you know, it's this aggressive billing thing. And it's, I think hospitals are having a, you know, an identity crisis right now. And it, it I think the reaction to, to this uh, price transparency stuff is going to be interesting because I have to tell you, I went to our, you know, Ascension owns the big, you know, it's, it's either HCA or Ascension here in, in Austin. And Ascension is the, you know, the big not-for-profit, mm -hmm. even though the, the other hospital system is a, is a not-for-profit via HCA. But I went onto their website and I, I did sort of what you said. So there wasn't a price list. It was this um, sort of workflow and it is a pain, it is useless it's useless. And to me, you know, it, it is so, I wish that they hadn't allowed <laughs> folks to, to, to do this workflow price estimator thing, because it's like you put in as, I mean, and this is the way theirs is, is structured. You put the zip code in, you put your, you know, what you're looking for. Then you, you, you put your health plan in, you, you put your insurer in, then you put your health plan in, then you, you select from like, 15 different things that have that no normal person can like somehow deconstruct what they are and then you ask for like the facility and then it says oh sorry we don't have a price at that facility for that hmm. and it, it's like if they had just given us the darn chart right. that had everything listed you know it would be a lot easier to actually price compare and right. i am sure and maybe you're familiar with this that there are companies out there that are going to basically scrape all that mm -hmm. and provide it to customers, probably at some sort of fee. And we might even contract with them to get that stuff in a format, you know, because that stuff changes constantly. Right. Have you heard about companies doing that? Or I don't know of any specifically, it? but I definitely know that there there's groups out there looking to scrape both the, the estimator data, as well as mm -hmm. that machine readable file off of, off of websites trying to leverage whether it's because they're working for an insurance company because they're working for uh cms and they want to help improve compliance or whether they're working for patients there, there's all sorts of those companies out there um yeah. looking to do exactly what you're talking about to try to you know, rake up that data and use it in, in one way shape or form yeah so let me ask you or let's discuss because you brought it up and i think it's it's super important and that's this quality issue. And, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do with our product is we're trying to, you know, predict folks' outcomes and say, here's the things you're most likely to get. We have uh, developed sort of a navigation tool that says, well, if, you, you, if you're projected to get gallstones, and we sort of tell people why mm -hmm. they might get gallstones, then we, we go through like, here are the different ways it could be treated. Because you never know, like, I, I can't tell you which thing you're going to need, if you're going to need lithotripsy, or if you're going to need this thing, mm -hmm. or if they're going to do like, you know, the, which procedure, it's going to depend on your doctor. But we're trying to tell people like what these things are in advance, so they have some ability to talk with their doctor about it and understand, and then put some prices on it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to do it that way because what, what how we've designed it, it we've, is we've said, you know, if you have gallstones, you know, you're going to have... A, a consultation and a consultation is going to be the doctor visit. It's going to cost this. It's going to be, you know, an ultrasound mm -hmm. that's going to cost this. And then it's like, then you're going to have some diagnostic stuff. 
you may have an MRI, it's going to cost this. So we've tried to put the costs in this sort of clinical workflow instead of, because what I don't want people to do is say, oh, I need an abdominal MRI. I'm going to go shop around and look for the best price and then like go through this workflow and try and pick the best prices because if they're not coordinated by the doctor and you you're like you know i've said this on other shows it's like you know you can get a a cheaper mri out of town but then you got to go get the data and bring it back and it, so i think there's a lot of education that needs to happen with patient consumers about what this price stuff means because if you're pricing out, if you go to the site for the knee replacement, you know, one, we don't know which kind of knee replacement it is, but in my perspective, that's one piece of it, right? Mm -hmm. There's the drugs, right? There's the right. rehab afterwards. There's right. all the diagnostic costs beforehand and none of that's in there. So, so to, to, to think that folks just need to shop for price, forget about quality. It's just, it's not just a, a transaction based sort of shopping experience, right? right? I can't go to Target and pick this up and then go to Walmart and get it over there and then get everything else I need at the grocery store. And then, you know what I mean? It's right. like, you got to coordinate it. Yeah. I think that um, I'd like to share an anecdote on that. When a couple jobs ago, I got there as a fairly rural hospital and I was coming from Deloitte, you know, one of the big, you know, firms, I think you had some time at Deloitte. Right. And That's I remember I texting my former Deloitte colleagues, because in my first week or two, I said, you're never going to believe what I did this week. I was haggling over prices with a, a member of the local Amish community. Because the <laughs> Amish community are the ultimate in self-pay, consumer-based, give me the lowest price consumers. That's really all they looked at. They didn't care about quality. They didn't care about the before the surgery, the after surgery, exactly like you said. It was purely transactional. And one of the things that we really tried to help in that community, and I don't mean this to disparage the Amish, folk, Amish folks out there uh, in, in the world, it's just that we then struggled sometimes with outcomes because of cost. They would look at the cost and they would skip um, elements of prenatal care or post-surgery care, things like that, because right. they were purely looking at cost. And that's part of why I say, not that we're all Amish, but that's part of why I say that race to the bottom isn't necessarily healthy because it may mean that you skip out on things that would otherwise improve your quality, just trying to avoid a cost element. And so besides that anecdote, then I, I think there are two- Which is a great two, anecdote, by the way. Oh, yeah, thank, thank you. you. Um, it, but there's two, There's to me, there are two sort of buckets or worth looking at, and then a whole universe that lives in between. A lot of healthcare and, and, and the lab folks who might listen will probably you know shoot me for this, but there's some <laughs> folks, there's some services that are pretty much commodities now. Lab is yeah. one of them, at least common labs, you know, your CBC, you know, your your for for the men, your your testosterone test or whatever, it's pretty commoditized. Your quality is not gonna vary very much uh, on who who does your blood draw and who runs the test, right? So there, you probably are looking at price is almost all, price and convenience is probably all that really matters mm -hmm. for the most part. Then there's the other extreme, some of these new services. One of these things that's a like a miracle of science to me is a TAVR, which is an outpatient aortic valve replacement. They go in and replace a valve in your heart, you know, like through your leg or something like that, in an outpatient basis, and it's wildly expensive. 
but there's, there's, it's not necessarily wildly expensive to the patient unless you're self-pay. If you have insurance, the insurance is who cares where you go on that one. You're going to exceed whatever out of maximum you have for the year, no matter where you have your tavern done, you know? Right. And so that's the other stream. It's very not commoditized and you care a lot because it is a, you know, a procedure on your heart. You care a lot about whether you come out of that upright or not. In fact, exactly. probably more than what the cost is. Cause again, your cost is whatever your deductible and out of pocket is, but your insurance is probably might, I'll hedge my bets here. They might try to route you to a lower cost provider. Well, exactly. is that lower cost provider one that's more likely to keep you healthy? Right. When I, it's funny because I, when I explain to people that we're doing sort of a navigation thing and they're like, well, we have navigation, you know, that's not new. And I'm like the navigation stuff, that's the products that are out there now are for employers to use to map the insurance that they've contracted for to make sure that people stay in network and go to the lowest, you know, go to the contracted provider to get the care. That doesn't mean it's the right thing for the patient. They're just trying to keep people in network. And, you know, and obviously if you're a patient, you don't want to go out of network, but you want the things that, you know, work for you. Um, And that's the whole point of our navigation is to try and get people to, to understand like what's going to happen to them so they can have a discussion with the doctor. But one thing on this, you know, price value thing, you know, I think people say quality to me, it's, it's, it's value, which is another buzzword in healthcare, but I've spent the last two years paying out of pocket for all of my healthcare to just to see what this feels like. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just the other day, I went to a follow-up with an orthopedist because I had a knee issue last year. And I knew it was going to cost me over $100 to go to this guy for the follow-up. And I, my knee was feeling pretty good. And I'm like, do I really need to go? Yeah. Like, is it worth it to me to go? And so I was like, you know, if I'm going to go, I've got like 10 questions I'm going to ask this guy and I'm going to get my money's worth. Mm -hmm. And I want, you know, and so I knew that there would be some positive validation, but it was like, I am going to get something out of this. And I did. And it was so interesting. Now, do I think it was worth a hundred bucks? Probably not, but it definitely was worth my time. And I, Mm -hmm. I know that most people, you know, face with paying that amount of money would, would blow it off, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to start getting to the point where people start to understand these prices so they, they can get what they want out of it. And it's not, and, and the point of getting what you want out of it is getting a doctor you like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went back to this doctor because he, you know, is a sports medicine god. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew I was going to get all these questions answered. And it's been really, you know, I'm so grateful to have this physician. Um, and I think that folks, one of the things that kind of chaps me about this pricing, you know, trans, the price transparency thing is that doctors aren't commodities, right? Right. Like lab work is, but, you know, one doctor isn't another doctor, isn't another doctor, which is why telemedicine is a problem Green. because people are like, oh, I'm just going to call up a doctor. Now, if you're going to call up a doctor because you have pink eye, you know, that's a commoditized, you know, event, but the rest of this relationship, the patient provider relationship aspect of it is where I feel like patients have become very disenfranchised and pricing or not, you know, uh, if, 
if we're not given more information and in like a peek under what's going on on the other side and the information that everybody else has, not just pricing, but how you route through the system and what you specifically need, then we're really not going to be able to change anything. Yeah, I would, I would, um, I don't know that I would disagree with anything there. I mean, I think that, and that was kind of my example of the two extremes, everything else is right. in between there some, at some point, right? And there's a, there's a scale of, of what's value, sorry, where we care about the value and where we just care about the, the price. And I do think that ultimately it has to be about one concept, which is when you have that third party insurance, you are the consumer of healthcare services, but you are not the buyer of healthcare right. services. And a service like you're, you're trying to work on with uh, longitudinal healthcare is trying to move to where that individual is the buyer. And I think one of the challenges there, and, and you're working on it, and that's great, is how do we get them to be an informed buyer? Aetna, right. United Healthcare, Anthem, they're huge companies. They have all this information and data, they can be very informed buyers. And overall, I do think that's good. It's good to have informed buyers of products and services. So how do we get individual patients to be informed buyers? They can't be without help. And so I think that that's why I really like my understanding of where you're trying to go and what you're trying to do, because yeah. I think it is important. It's one of those disruptors that that um, could really help our our industry because we're not as much as I like what I do, and I do believe I contribute to the mission of my organization, and I do want to help people be healthy, our industry is not sustainable. We cannot have increases in, in the price of healthcare exceeding inflation every year for five decades. It just mm -hmm. isn't sustainable. And that's essentially what we've had in the United yeah. States. We have to get more married with the rate of inflation. I mean, then it's just normal growth, right? So yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, and I have an interesting, like, final topic sure. uh, on this idea of disruption. You know that you brought up. Since I do work in the, you know, the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial world, uh, and I see a lot of healthcare startups, it's it's interesting because most of the folks who are doing these uh, don't have a lot of healthcare mm -hmm. knowledge. And you know that's good because obviously you know if we just keep perpetuating what we have, that's not going to be good. Um, but there are some ideas out there. One of which is reference-based pricing, which I think is should terrify people if they mm -hmm. really understood what it meant. And the idea is that because, as we talked at the beginning, as an insurance company, you know you're one of many different like negotiated rates with a provider. And if I am you know trying to provide insurance for an employer, a small employer, and that's my business, then I've got to go contract with every single hospital and, and like set rates and do all this stuff. And it's really expensive. And, you know, I don't have a lot of leverage to be negotiating with anybody. Um, so what I've seen now is instead of doing any negotiation, the small insurance, the small insurer, you know, broker who's crafting these plans for small employers is saying, we're just going to tell you how much we're going to we're going to cover flat fee wise for you know for everything for these codes whatever for all this different stuff and so that's what you're going to be on the hook to pay for employer um, and if there's any difference between what the hospital charges you and what you know this base rate is then 
the patient, your employee is stuck paying it. Mm -hmm. And so can you explain like, you know, an example of how a, a patient that comes to you with an insurance card that uses reference-based pricing, how, how problematic it could be for them and, and what that means? Because I don't, I don't think that the patients understand at all what risk they're taking. Um, it, it can be enormously problematic, enormously frustrating. I haven't met a CFO in healthcare yet who's a fan of them or a managed care person who's a fan of them um, dealing with the insurance companies. Because a lot of times these small companies or whoever that are formulating these reference-based plans uh, do not engage with providers. To, they don't sign a contract. So that's mm -hmm. one of the first things is they just say, this is what we're going to pay. So let's use that typical lab, that, that CBC, where maybe a commercial plan might pay a hundred bucks, uh, Medicare, I'm making numbers up, uh, Medicare right, might right. pay 40 bucks and this reference plan will pay you 10 bucks. But let's say the cost of your equipment to do the lab test is 10 bucks, you know, or, or 11, you know, or something like that. We're kind of maybe break even or losing money when it's that reference price. If you don't have a contract with me, I'm going to reject that payment. Most likely. I, I, I mean, some providers might take it, but a lot of them are going to reject that outright. They're just going to say, no, I'm, I'm not accepting this. Because one of the things that a lot of those insurance cards say is if you take payment, you agree to payment, like you're done and you can't bill the patient for anything else. So you are put in a position where you sort of have to reject it. It also, a lot so of those happen before the patient, you know, so the patient presents their insurance card, you look at it and you're like, you can't even get care here because, you know, we're not, we're not accepting this form of payment. Well, a lot of times you'd be treated as a self-pay. You'd say, we don't right. take this insurance. You could come here, but you're going to get treated as a self-pay patient. That's assuming you've got good, well-educated front-end staff members who recognize it because a lot of these cards are also designed in a way that makes it challenging to recognize that it is a reference-based plan. Mm -hmm. The other element, so, so that's sort of the front end, check in, getting the right insurance, and then the potential cost to the patient, it, it, it could just be treated as a self-pay. The other potentiality that could happen is, again, because you don't have a con contract, you could then say, well, we're going to balance bill the patient. And I think this is where you were talking, the patient could end up on the hook. So you come in and say, uh, using that same example, that CBC, and maybe we're going to bill you the Medicare rate. Well, now you're paying 30 bucks on top of what the insurance company, you, the patient, um, Janice, is paying 30 bucks on top of the, the, what the insurance company paid just to get to that $40 made up Medicare rate. And you don't know about it up front. You get billed on the back end for that $30 right. and things like that. And that's a small dollar example. I've seen some very large dollar examples of this. And, um, that is one of the more frustrating things two administrations ago. Um, it's not a black and white issue. There were a lot of pros and cons about the Affordable Care Act. A lot of people wanna say it's all evil or it's all good, right? But one of the things that was bad about it was the administration at that time said that reference-based plans and the cost that goes to the patient do not apply to statutory maximums on out-of-pocket maximums. There were rules that said you couldn't have more than X amount of dollars that were your out-of-pocket maximums. And they said, mm -hmm. that doesn't apply to reference-based plans. So if you had Meaning a- Meaning like if I'm a patient, then I who know, I have no cap. Correct. That, that's the- ba that's the Basically, yeah, basically. Because it's like, it's not a contracted plan. Right. And so, you know, if the cap is $10,000 under an ACA plan, but I get balance billed 
fifty thousand right. dollars because I went to the ER and I get charged whatever the hell you know you folks want right. to charge me, you know. Pardon my French, but you know that's how people feel. You right. know, there, there's no cap on that. Correct. And you're on really dangerously exposed financially. Exactly. And and that was so frustrating about that ruling at that time. Um, and I think that has stood through then the, the outgoing administration. I don't think they changed that. And, and so that's very frustrating. And, and what's also frustrating to me as a provider is we do, and you mentioned this earlier, we do have a lot that we need to do as an industry on surprise billing. Um, right. There's hospitals have, have some burden to bear to fix that um, and to do better. But this is one that is an emerging, a, a large growing portion of surprise billing comes from these reference plans. Yeah, and that's not and the provider's fault. I, I mean, right. I'm sorry. It's not a provider's fault that your employer tried to save a buck by getting a reference plan, didn't tell you that they were getting a reference plan. And now you get a bill, you know, for, for the excess cost of your MRI or something like that. Yeah. And this is, I kind of, you know, why I bring it up because I, like I said earlier, I think that the hospitals are really having an, are, are approaching an image problem. And this, you know, can really snowball it because mm -hmm. it's like, oh, well, now, you know, everyone's getting all these balanced bills. And in Texas, where I am, they passed, you know, some balanced billing legislation that prevented it. But this sort of thing doesn't fit in because it's not, like you said, one of these plans that, you know, uh, it's sort of outside of that. And I, I really think that there's a, a lot. I mean, it frustrates me that uh, investors would invest in something like that. I think it's, it's, it's just really bad ultimately for the patients who are on this thing. I mean, and I, I, I hope that we can, that maybe this price transparency stuff that's come out can start to give better prices, you know, and uh, help, you know, make it easier to, to let employers know what the costs are gonna be because at least they can have an idea now of what some of these prices are and price their plans better than using this uh, reference-based pricing um, because it, it's just, it's nice to have a benchmark. Um, and I think, you know, we're considering using it just because it's so universal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the listeners, what it means is basically Medicare, typically how it would be done, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me. But, you know, Medicare lists prices locally, you know, right. in communities all around the country, it's all set up, it's public, it's, you know, it, it, they update it all the time. Everyone agrees to it, everyone pays them. And so you just say, well, you know, we're going to pay 150% of what Medicare pays mm -hmm. and that's it. Then you're done. Right. It's just a multiple. And it's nice. I mean, we're considering using it as a proxy because our intention isn't to get people to shop one thing to another necessarily. We're trying to get people to understand order of magnitude, the difference between one thing and another. Right. So if you're thinking, oh, I, I just want knee surgery and it's like, okay, well, you can have this, maybe a cortisone shot in the interim or mm -hmm. like a platelet shot, you right. know, which is only a few hundred bucks. If just you have an idea of the order of magnitude of these things so you can compare um, is, you know, I think is a useful way to use reference-based pricing, but as an actual reimbursement structure, I think it's, it's dangerous. I, so. I, I agree. I do think it was either in the recent stimulus or the recent omnibus though, that there was some federal uh, language and guidance around surprise billing. And so I do worry that we're going to see an increase in reference-based pricing because it basically, if you just put a blanket sort of kibosh on, on 
surprise billing. A lot of surprise billing comes from balance billing. And these days, a lot of balance billing comes from these reference plans. So again, yeah. we need to fix it. Our industry um, it, it needs to do better. But uh, I don't know that that's, that's the way to do it is more reference plans. So, um, you know, I, I think that, again, just, just you kind of mentioned the references as sort of a final thought. I mean, to me, mm. I think that I, I've said a lot about we're not sustainable, we need to improve. I don't want to paint a negative picture for your patients, though, because I do think that we're getting to where um, automation AI, machine learning, all these fancy terms, but they're also fancy tools and they could do really cool things. And I think that where hospitals and insurance companies are able to overcome some of the adversarial environment and have true collaboration, we're seeing good wins. Companies like yours can exist today that probably couldn't 10 years ago. I mean, right. so I think we're in a, rate, a, a, a right spot to achieve things that we never could have before. So I am optimistic and feel good about where things are going in, in, in healthcare for, for this country. But there's probably some you know, pain points as we you know, rip the bandaid off some of these things, right? So um, just wanted to kind of end positive because there's several yeah. things I've said that were not so positive over the course well, of the call. You, you, can't, you can't help it though. And I appreciate your candor, uh, David. And I, I think this has been a, I've learned a lot from this. Um, so it, can people reach out to you? Is there a good way to reach you? Are you on any of these uh, funky social media sites? Um, sure, uh, I am on uh, the, the main one. I really don't do Twitter or, or any of that stuff, <laughs> never have. Um, and, but where I, I am pretty active is on LinkedIn. Um, people can find me on LinkedIn, David Kelly, right. MHSA on LinkedIn. I try to accept everybody. If you are an annoying salesman, I might unfriend <laughs> you or, or unconnect from you. Um, but generally, I try to connect with everybody, try to be helpful. Um, you know, if they've got industry questions or whatever, I think that's what LinkedIn is about: is trying to build meaningful connections with people. So that's where they can get a hold of me. Yeah. Well, I have to say, you've been an amazing resource for me, and I'm so grateful um, to have spoken with you on a, a number of issues. And this has been really terrific. So thank you so much for your awesome insights. It is going to be a great year. It's going to be very interesting. And I'm glad that, you know, we're, we're on the mission to, to fix things. Thank so you. thanks to you listeners. Uh, thanks to you, David. Um, this is the Powers Report podcast. I invite you to subscribe to our show. Check us out at powersreportpodcast.com. You can access over two years of podcasts on the website and communicate through the contact page. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much for listening.